Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Tony Black who is the author of numerous books but today we're going to be talking uh, books about uh, Star Trek and about uh, TV shows and myth. Uh, So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that but mainly we're going to be talking about his new book which has recently come out called The Cinematic Connery which is absolutely touching my sweet spot and I'm sure it's touching a lot of your sweet spots as well. Uh, or sweet spots, I should say. Perhaps that's the o- that's the only one I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna do. If you if you if you enjoy the episode, please remember to like, subscribe, um, and do all that stuff that you have to do to keep this podcast going. And uh, but before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. I grew up in the 90s so by that point he was a bit of a cinematic emeritus figure you know he was doing he was the big superstar but he was doing various different things like the rock or you know entrapment and all of these big blockbuster movies that you know indiana jones and the last crusade in the late 80s stuff like that that was that was huge and he was one of those marquee names with you know, you get over a poster. And I think I actually discovered him there before I discovered James Bond, you know, him him as James Bond, really, anyway. Um, and I just, I just, he became my favourite actor very quickly. And I've, I've thought about why, and I talk a little bit about why in the book, in that I think it was that he, 
he represented a real sense of old world strength and masculinity in in his performances that you didn't get everywhere else and charisma you know i'm really drawn to very charismatic actors i mean i, I really like tom cruise as an actor my wife hates him right. <laughs> you know and he's, he's quite marmite but he has a similar kind of thing to connery in the sense of you know there is such a a, a a force about them and the way they do things and a singularity that makes them really appealing to watch even if their movies aren't always great so i think i just loved his films or well, most of his films anyway and i just really liked the way he performed and i think it just it just it's just stuck with me all the way through even though he stopped making films relatively when i was relatively young mm. you know so i think that was it really yeah it's it's funny that i'm trying to think of where my relationship with him started certainly i mean i was i was growing up in the 80s so uh, you know roger moore was my cinematic bond um yeah so you know connery was the tv bond uh and um yeah i don't think i've ever seen a, a connery bond on the big screen um but i think I, I think the film that i really loved that he did was outland i think that was the film that i remember i remember seeing the science fiction peter yeah. hyam film 1981 and, that was yeah. yeah yeah and you compare it to alien in your in your book which is um mm. which i think is a fair a f fair cop <laughs> yeah i think it, it's they're very different films obviously but they i i think they could live in the same universe because mm. they both represent this very cold capitalist future for humanity and Connery is Connery's like an old, you know, it was it was based heavily on High Noon. High Noon was the big inspiration point for Outland. And Connery is very much that old classic Western character who he's going to fight the bad guys. Literally, the ending is him waiting for the bad guys to come and try and kill him and him have to try and battle them. And it's that that I love that. And I think I think that that fits very well in that that cold, futuristic sci fi lens. And I just I wish he'd made more films like that, to be honest, because and that's the thing with him. He did so many different genres and so many different movies. You could never really pigeonhole him into one thing, even at, even despite Bond. But I'd love to have seen him do more of that, that kind of stuff, really, because Outland's very good. Very good film. I think your book's really interesting from the point of view that um, I mean, I think I know a lot about Sean Connery. I've read I've read a biography. I remember going to I remember going to Scotland once with my uh, mum and dad when I was like a kid when I was like eight or nine and I was reading this Sean Connery paperback biography <laughs> really sort of thin one really not not particularly you know something just culled from newspaper interviews and stuff yeah. um and uh and I, I I they was sort of like we're on holiday we're in Scotland and I was like yeah but I'm reading about Sean Connery so I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm kind of in the... you're on brand you're on brand there yeah exactly yeah <laughs> yeah but um but your book there was there were certain aspects of his life that I hadn't previously sort of appreciated and one of them is uh the points you make that he kind of comes to Bond and he's already quite a good actor he's already had a hell of a lot of experience yeah, and he's 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 been a jobbing actor for the better part of a of a decade, really, in terms of television. And he's done a lot of TV. He's done a lot of um, TV movies. There's one where he, he they uh, there was a uh, a TV movie called Blood Money in the US. It was about a boxer, and it was uh, written by Rod Serling, who went on to write The Twilight Zone mid fifties. Um, and uh, it's adapted for the UK. And Connery plays the boxer. This is late fifties. 
sadly it doesn't it doesn't survive anymore because they used to wipe the tapes you know back in the day uh, oh. which is got i know it's gutting because like it. so much great stuff was lost you know um but there's there's some audio that was found about 10 years ago um that you can hear and the stills and things like that so he did a lot of that he did some theater you know he did like anna karenina on stage he did macbeth you know as well and he and years later he tried to get a macbeth movie mounted which Connery's Macbeth on screen would be would have been marvelous, I think, or marvelous. Um, would have been brilliant. <laughs> You're only allowed um, one. You've had your one there. Right, I've had my one. Okay, <laughs> uh, it's got to be done. But yeah, that's that's a shame. Um, but he was also uh, it, it, doing a lot of supporting roles. You know, he was he was playing the romantic, not necessarily the romantic lead, but the romantic character in stuff like. Um, another time another place in the late 50s mm. and uh and playing the comedy sidekick at points as well so there's a film called on the fiddle which was not long before uh dr no where he's uh, i've said it in other other interviews and things he's a bit like bernard breslaw from the carry-ons he's that big hulking sort of you know hello that kind of guy and, mm. and you just don't really associate him in some ways with the connery you know so he, he he, his career could have gone down a very different path, I think, had Bond not come along. I, I mean, one of those paths was uh, the, the path to Manchester United because he was he was sort yeah. of like uh, almost scouted, um, you know, the, the great, you know, uh, obviously he must have been quite a talented football player. Mm, I think he was, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, history could have gone a, a different way and he, he might have ended up on the Munich airplane you know at that right, <laughs> right. yeah which would yeah. have been awful obviously yeah. you know in the late 50s but yeah he um he, he he did have football trials i mean he did loads of things before the movies came along and before entertainment came along because he he, he discovered uh, he was on, he was in south pacific on stage and that's where he started to get breaks but he was in the navy for a spell mm. didn't do very well in the navy because he just doesn't get on with authority <laughs> he didn't get on with authority very well um and he did loads of jobs he was a milkman you know he was I think he did some paint and decorating. He was just all through like the 40s, late 40s into the early 50s. He was, because he was such a big guy and he mm. could do a lot of trades. And I mean, his brother Neil ended up being a plasterer. And, mm. I, and I don't think Neil quite had the physique he did in the same way, but he was, you know, a, a strong bloke. So I think they had that, they were from that classic Scottish working class stock, you know. Mm. Um, and of course he was Mr. Universe uh, mm. in the mid 50s. And there's pictures in the book of him extremely boff, like when he's like in his mid 20s. Um, so yeah, he had a he had a quite a varied, fascinating life even before he came to the movies. Yeah, and and you know some of those roles that he's portrayed. I, I remember seeing a crime movie. You mention it in the book. Uh, the title escapes me, but I'm sure. Frightened City. Yes, he one? plays. Yeah, he plays a Scottish, uh, you know, a, a sort of Irish sounding Scottish gangster, sort of, well, yeah. criminal cat burglar type. Yeah. 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 Uh, Herbert uh, Lom is in it as well, if I remember rightly. Yeah, he did a couple of with Herbert Lom. He was he did mm. Hell Drivers. Well, he had a, a small supporting part in Hell Drivers, in a great movie that is in the late fifties. Yeah, absolutely. which has a, a, the litany of people in that cast is incredible. He, even in supporting roles, you know, Patrick McGowan and Herbert Lom and Stanley Baker, all these people. Um, but yeah, he uh, the Frightened City. I've always thought was kind of his version of Daniel Craig's Layer Cake in terms of an audition piece for Bond. Unofficially, I don't mm. think that was what got him the Bond part. Don't get me wrong. But I do think I'd be surprised if Harry Saltzman and Cobby Broccoli hadn't looked, hadn't watched The Frightened City as well and gone, oh, he's got something there. He's got some presence and danger because that's, I think, the first movie that he really gets to show that on the screen. 
And so then he gets, uh, and then he gets the role of of Bond. And I mean, the, uh, the details around this have almost become as legendary as, uh, mm. you know. Uh, uh, Terence Young telling him to sort of sleep in a suit and them looking out of the window and watching him yeah. sort of watching him walk down the street and thinking, wow, this guy's, yeah. this guy doesn't give a shit, you know? Um, yeah. How much do you think, because also you make the very good point, which, which is that um, Ian Fleming's Bond and Connery's Bond are really different uh, sort mm. of characters. So uh, how many, how much do you think that was, that was down to Connery himself, just sort of what he brought to the table? I think there was quite a bit of that, really, because, I mean, Fleming historically didn't like the, the choice, you know, at first. Mm. He was very, very... I think he thought Connery was a commoner who didn't deserve to play Bond, who in his mind, you know, this is well known, but in his mind, he was like a Hoagie Carmichael figure. You know, he was mm. very different, kind of much more posh and establishment. And, you know, Connery was not posh or establishment. You know, mm. he tried throughout his life. You know, if you listen to him in interviews, it's very interesting how he often uses the term one. He says one would not, you know, debase himself like that. So I think there's a lot with Connery where he's trying to be a little bit more upwardly mobile and educated. And, and he was actually, I mean, he, he read a lot, you know, he studied a lot. He was an intelligent man but he wasn't establishment. So coming into Bond, I think he brought a, a lot of that natural, um, can I swear? Go can ahead. Yeah, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I think he brought a lot of that natural, you know, fuck you energy to Bond. Mm. And even mm. though he was refined and he had that class that he brought into the part, there was danger and there was a sense of, you know, a real brawler in there and a real, and that gangster kind of figure in a way, you know, that he, he could rough you up. And I think that was Connery. And I think without that, Bond, yes, changes throughout the years and he morph, it morphs depending on the actor playing him. But every single Bond, even Roger Moore, had that element of Bond to them all the way through. There were Roger mm. Moore films where he really get, he's really nasty, like The Man with the Golden Gun or For Your Eyes Only. And there are Connery touches, even with Roger Moore. And I think without Connery, I don't think Bond would have been as successful. I do not think mm. it would have it would still be round today in the way it is. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a little bit like the Burt Reynolds uh, audition tape for Indiana Jones. You know, but there's a sort of alternative <laughs> universe in which that could happen, and then you think, yeah, yeah that, that would never have happened. There was no, no. you know, he was so wrong for that role. Yeah, and, and similarly with James Bond, you just think, yeah, Connery, it has to be him for him to become this huge sort of phenomenon. Um, I can't. It's, for instance, if they'd started with Roger Moore, because they're they're roughly the same mm. age, right? They're not, mm, yeah, not yeah there was about three years in it, I think. And, and Moore was, was well known. I think he might have been sort of on the table at the mm. beginning, mm. but he was tied up with the Saint and TV and things. So it would have never have happened. But I don't, so yeah, it would, it would have, I don't know if Roger Moore would have been able to make it what it was at that point. Yeah, I mm. agree. Mm. And I mean, the interesting thing, I did a rewatch of the Bonds about a year, maybe it was a couple of years ago, it was sort of the beginning of COVID. And the thing I noticed as I went through the the, the lot, um, well, the first thing I noticed is how few of them actually work as films. You know, that what <laughs> once you get once you get outside yeah. of the Conneries, especially after those first, say, three, I would guess. You know, you're quickly going, this isn't really a film. I mean, it's a Bond film, but it's not really yeah. a film. You know, yeah, it's yeah. not got... Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to see how they sort of build up the character and how they build up those different aspects of him. And yet at the same time, he's he, he arrives in Doctor No and he's fully made, you know. Mm, yeah, it's, it's quite remarkable, really, because Doctor No wasn't a beat-for-beat, beat, 
you know, version of that book. You know, it mm, definitely, no. it's definitely different from the book in some ways. And I think it, it is quite remarkable how it comes together in that sense. I, I think it's just a bit of an alchemy of, of actor, of, of writing, of the way that Terence Young shot it. You know, you mentioned Terence Young earlier. Many people said he could have been Bond in real life. Mm. He had the he had the look, he had the tailoring, he had the breeding, he had the the suaveness, yeah, you know, all that. And he and he like you said, he took uh, Connery to Savile Row and he, he got him dressed because he was he get he went to the audition that you touched on earlier, I think in like a t-shirt and jeans, you know, mm. and he, he, he just, he was very much, well, you take it or leave it. At first, I, don't, I think he refused to screen test, you know, he was like, well, I'm not doing that, you know. And this is a guy who, he's not at the at the peak of his career by any means, you know, he's been in like the longest day on, in the same year, which is quite a big movie, but it's a tiny part, you know, it's mm. a cameo. He's not really at the point that he can command anything, but he doesn't care. He's like, I am who I am. And I'm not, if I don't want to do something, I'm not going to do it, whatever happens. And that I think is part of what, why this all came together. Because I think in some ways, in a weird way, I think he felt he had nothing to lose. Mm. And I, I think that actually informs how, how it all starts really. Yeah. And the longest day, of course, he's playing, <laughs> yeah, no, he's playing like an Irish, an Irish guy, isn't he? <laughs> was he, was he playing an Irish guy in, in um, the Frightened City as well? Oh, do you know he could have been? He yeah, I been. think he but, was. You know. you know, I think he's like Paddy or something. I mean, it's literally. Oh yeah, he is Paddy Damien. He's his yeah, name, I think. Yeah, in that. yeah, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think he was an Irish guy. Not that you'd know, to be fair. No, no, of course not. I mean, heaven, <laughs> heaven, heaven forbid. I did a video. I should. Uh, I, I'll link to it in the show notes. But I did a video, very amateurish video, called "Around the World with Sean Connery," and it just goes goes to all his different accents, which are exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do do link that. That sounds funny. Yeah. Um, uh, talking, I mean, the thing you ju- I was just thinking when you were talking about the, the class aspect, which I think is really fascinating because I, I remember the scene, I think it's in Goldfinger, where he sort of discusses the different brandy or the different wine with and mm. and M is sitting next to him and he's like, you know, shut up, Bond. You know, it's like stop showing, <laughs> stop showing off, you know. And it's just a really funny scene. And I think the the humor of it is that actually these upper class people with the exception of Terence Young, perhaps aren't really that necessarily that knowledgeable about all this stuff. I mean, Ian Fleming was famously a rotten cook and, and, <laughs> and really had no uh, taste whatsoever in terms of drink yeah. or, and, and what he would do is he would write to people who, you know, a famous food critic or a fa- and say, okay, Bond's going to have a meal. What should he have? And they would <laughs> give him this information and he'd write it into the book as a, because he didn't, he wasn't a connoisseur at all. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, di- I didn't know that actually. No, that that's a good fact about Fleming. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, it it it's a funny, it's weird how the Bond film. I mean, the Bond films are a strange combination of lots of different things. There is, as you say, that clash between between the class system and the fact you have these people who aren't necessarily upper class themselves making it. But you've also got the Anglo-American aspect in that the mm. two producers of the movies are both Americans. Cubby Broccoli could not be more Italian-American if he tried, you know. Uh, and and that whole lineage of that it comes from is not is not at all the British establishment and the upper class. And I think that's why it works. I think that's why it's so distinctive because it is a real combination. You know, the glitz and the glamour. And, you know, you see it particularly in Goldfinger, as you said, 
he's he's extremely American. You know, if you'd made this in a British style at this time, purely British style, it would have been really pompous. It would have been really stiff, I think. And it wouldn't have nearly had the sexiness and the swagger of that. You know, that I always think it's it's that Mad Men era of America, you know, mm. where everyone is dressed really well. There, 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 there's just there's just a, a, a real confidence in that sort of boom era of America in the early 60s. And it bleeds into Bond and it, and it, it brews up with Connery's pure machismo, his sex appeal. You know, the fact that it, it I mean, it triggers a, a, a movement almost equivalent to Beatlemania. Bond mania has been written about, you know, James Chapman, who writes, has wrote brilliant books about Bond. Uh, written brilliant books about Bond. You know, he talks about Bond mania at the time. And yeah, Connery was being mobbed like like mm. the Beatles were in the mid-60s. You know, yeah. I don't know if you saw um, uh, Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. Yes, yes, with a Thunderball sort of... Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. The, the brilliant shot of the Thunderball poster, you know, emblazoning a Soho uh, cinema. And it's an amazing shot. You know, Thomas McKenzie walks out and she sees this. And Connery's there, you know, on one knee with a big harpoon in his hand. And it's like, that's that's what it was like. You know, it was he was huge. And it was everywhere. So I think that is a major reason why it took off, because it had all of these elements that weren't just about one upper class system being reinforced. Yeah, it's absolutely sort of bre- a, a breakthrough. And of course, there's the escapism as well of, um, you know, I mean, the amount of travel that, that, that uh, and, and how we forget today in our, you know, in our, you know, the years of Ryanair and EasyJet. <laughs> but but you watch a Bond movie and him just walking through an airport is is enough to cue the John Barry mu- music. It's like, look, <laughs> he's in an airport, you know? So he's going to the yeah. moon or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They ought to try that these days with people walking through Heathrow, you know, and loop some John Barry over it. Wouldn't have the same effect, would it? No. Uh, <laughs> we all yeah, no. the, the crocodile cues and the... <laughs> But yeah, I think that exoticism definitely was a part of why this worked. You know, people were able to dream of going to the Bahamas or going to, you know, Venice and all of these amazing places. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that's one thing that Bond has managed to keep and, you know, and, re- and keep recapturing. I think even in the new movies, many of them, you know, I mean, in No Time to Die recently, there was that beautiful Matera in Italy, that, that city that's like a stepped city. I mean, it's gorgeous. And you think... Oh man, to drive an Aston Martin around there would be incredible. And so it's it, it kept that exoticism and glamour that was absolutely there at the beginning with Connery and his films. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the globe trotting and the sort of the postcard mm. locales and everything. Mm. And in between the Bond films, he's already sort of trying to, you know, I mean, it, it, it's almost from the very beginning he starts to sort of. Uh, you know, try to stretch himself, try to get out there, try try to make it about, as you said in the book, it may, may make sure that he's not losing Connery the actor to bond the character. The one film that that really stands out in that in that period is the Alfred Hitchcock Marnie, which mm. is uh, which is a very very strange film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's quite strange. I think it's because it. It's obviously a classic Hitchcock in the sense it's about a blonde who is, you know, in a uh, a difficult situation with very controlling men around. Then there's an element of mystery, but it's a real. I mean, it's it would. It, I think looking back on it now, there have been some really interesting takes about how controversial some of these subjects are. You know, in Marnie mm. and Connery is, you know, during this period, he makes a, a few films where he's playing off 
this bond persona that he now has and trying to sh- trying to shake it off you know with marnie he's playing this quite toxic masculine man who is who he's got tippy hedron you know in his headlights in woman of straw which is a much less uh, well made melodrama really in uh, in the same year by basil dearden he plays uh, the the, nie- the nephew of ralph richardson's you know wealthy uh, uh, wealthy British man and he's caught in a, in a web of seduction and, and intrigue with Gina Lollabrigida at that time was huge you know mm, yeah um, and he, he plays second fiddle to her really and it's a bit of a rubbish part but it's that's he's very suave in that he's well tailored um and then uh Irving Kirshner's a fine madness in in about 1965 66 he's I mean I I think I really don't like this film and Connery's <laughs> Connery's performance in it He's, he's fine, but he's playing an awful, awful man. <laughs> like he's, a, he's a tormented writer who is so up his own backside <laughs> you know, to wonder he can see daylight. And um, it's it's billed as a farcical comedy, but it, I don't think I, it didn't work for me personally. But in all of these things, he's playing variations on the in all of them. There are there are glamorous women. There are. Uh, you know, he's caught in a web of sex and, and all this kind of thing. And, and he's but he but he's not bond and he's not mm. trying to be bond mm. but at the same time he can't quite escape it and it feels like all these other roles that he's being cast in outside of bond are everyone who's making who are making these films have one eye on the fact that the, sean connery is james bond and they can't quite lose that and i think it drives him mad <laughs> I, I think it's partly one of the things that he that leads him to have such frustration and antipathy with bond by the time you get to the mid to late 60s uh, because by then he's really had enough. And mm. I think a lot of it is that he really wants to be, he wants, to, in his heart, I think Connery was a character actor. Mm. And I think he, mm. I think stardom and that big screen charisma prevented him truly being that. But I think what he really wanted to be was a really respected, v- variable actor who did lots of different things. Mm. And he, and I think he, he did that, but I don't think he ever quite got the acclaim. And the 60s, the start of the 60s, you really see him trying to make that break, I think. Yeah, I mean, those films that you mentioned, I've, I've not seen um, The Woman of Straw. I have seen uh, Fine Madness and obviously Marnie yeah. I've seen. Uh, Fine yeah. Madness is a, 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 a bin fire of a film. It's, it's so <laughs> weird. It is. It's such a weird film. But yeah. I'm always... I mean, it's similar with Marnie, where when I first watched Marnie, I didn't watch it thinking, oh, look at Sean Connery, he's playing a really toxic character. I saw it as, wow, they made the male hero go in a weird direction, you know? Well, yeah. I saw it being he's the hero, and because this was the period where there was a fairly constant sort of trope of male leads sort of boasting of themselves being, you know, male chauvinist pig and proud of it. And where, you know, it's that sort of playboy (laughs) generation where we're supposed to go, that's actually a quite, you know, nowadays it would be a Jordan Peterson position, you know, but it's Mm. kind of like, you know, that even then, I I don't know if I was, and the same with a a fine madness, you're supposed to think, I I think you're supposed to like him. I don't think you you are. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you this... don't. <laughs> no. <laughs> you really Can't... don't. What are you supposed to? Oh, it's such a it's such a badly poorly conceived film yeah. that, from every 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 angle. It's kind of like that. If he doesn't beat you, he doesn't love you, sort of philosophy. Mm. It's Ter- awful. Yeah, yeah. And this sort of keys into something else that you bring up. And um I, and because you're 
your book isn't biographical. You make that really that you make that point very clear. This, you know, you you trace his his career rather than his life, rather than his yeah. mar- marriages and his family and stuff like that. Mm. You, you give it, you know, you mention it, but you don't. Mm. Um, I, and of course, one of the controversies you uh, you don't shy away from is that uh, the, the infamous interview he gave with Playboy, where he talked about. Um, his attitude towards slapping women. Uh, how how did you? I mean, that becomes that that also means that when you watch something like a Fine Madness, you're sort of thinking he, he you know, this is, there's no distance between him and the character necessarily. I know, and and it is one of the things that he he it haunt that interview haunted him a little bit throughout mm. his career. It came back up in the early '80s, I think, with an interview with Barbara Walters on yes. TV. Um, I think it was it came back up again at the in the nineties at some point, but I, and and I made I make a point at the end of the book of openly wondering how Connery would have done had he been maybe 10, 15 years younger and he was still around and he was maybe still making films, how would he have survived the Me Too era? And I'm not sure that he would because I mean even even after he died, there were there were one or two really vitriolic pieces calling him out. As a, as a bully and um, an abusive husband, you know, because there were reports that he'd hit his wife, you know, Diane Calento back in the 60s and all this kind of thing. And I, I mean, that interview essentially spells out that his philosophy was, yeah, a woman needs a slap if she's not in line. Mm. Now, I, you know, I, I wouldn't call myself a feminist, John, to be honest. I'm not going to be mm. one of those guys who says that. But equally, I, I find that hard to square with um, the connery that I do like, as a, as a performer, you know, right. those aspects are repellent to me. You know, I, I, I do think that, but I think, I really do think in these kind of instances, and I'm not defending him, but I think we have to put it in the context of the era. And I think we have to think at that time, those comments would maybe have been a bit controversial, but they wouldn't have been considered like they are today. And where I think we do we do cast people in one particular light based on what they say when human beings are quite complex. And I think, I don't think he should be defended for that, but I do think that maybe historically there were, there was more of an understanding. And I think this may be something we've lost today in that comments exist within the time period they are, they're, they're made in. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why his career was never destroyed by this and never tarnished by it in the way I think it would be today. Um, and and I, I think in some ways, I wonder if it was part of him saying that was part of him building up this masculine persona that he was very well known for in the movies. You know, I don't necessarily think it was calculated and he did it on purpose to help his career, but I do think there was an image of Bond that, and 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 there was a diff. The audiences found a real difficulty in delineating Connery and Bond. Mm. You know, he would have people shout at him, "Mr. Bond" on the street, and it drove him mad because he's like, "I'm Sean Connery." Mm. Um, and I think maybe there was that element of you know he does an interview for some a, a magazine like Playboy, and there is maybe a readership that expects certain things. I think it's complex, and I think it's a really difficult one. That whole interview. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, um, I mean, in the end, I, I I go with what my dad used to say, where, you know, I like football, I don't particularly like footballers. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I find it very easy to, to, you know, to watch actors who I disagree with and, and who yeah. maybe have done things that I really, uh, you know, 
I really don't like. I think it is important to have uh, an eye on the context. And I think you're right, the Playboy magazine. And I think to some extent, even the Barbara Walters interview, he's kind of gets his back up a bit because it's like, you know, mm. how dare you talk to me like that? <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> God damn it, I've done it again. You've done um, two. You've done two. You broke uh, your own rule there, John. Okay. I'll tell you what, let's just do the rest of the interview, the rest of the podcast in okay. Sean Connery voices. That works for me. Yeah. <laughs> you're, oh, no. You're too good. You're too good. How long uh, could we sustain it? That's the question. That's the question. Who could know? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> ah, <laughs> yeah, about 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 ten seconds. Yeah, yeah there we exactly. Go. <laughs> I thought, oh, I'm I'm spent. Um, yeah, no, I, I I think it is a complicated thing. I don't see any need to like, for instance, uh, one of my guests uh, from a few weeks back, uh, Hannah Flint, mentioned the fact that she 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 tweeted when Sean Connery died. R.I.P. Sean Connery. He was one of my favorite actors with some problematic, you know, views about women. Mm. And and she was like, I got so much vitriol for that, and and I I I think you know I think it I think it's wrong. I think you don't should don't deserve to get that. I think it's right to say, I don't I don't you know it's not about destroying careers or or, or cancelling people or anything like that because I don't really think that actually happens anyway. Mm. But um, it's more about um, it's just about looking at people in the context of their times, but also you know, saying what, what you don't like, um, mm-hmm. you know, anyway, let's, let's, let's move on from that. Um, it's what you say though, about it being a part of that masculine, uh, persona and he's some, to some degree, perhaps playing up to it. I think that's interesting. I think that's a, uh, that's definitely, um, something that I suspect is true, that that's his sort of... Mm. Did you remember, did you used to see him on Around with Alice? That was one of my abiding memories of Sean Connery. No. Do you, do you remember Around so. with Alice? Okay, remember, I don't. He used, to, he used to appear quite often. I'm sure you can find them on YouTube. Mm. This was, uh, if, if people don't know, this was a, a BBC show where celebrities would play golf with Peter... Peter <laughs> oh, Peter, well. Peter Salas or Peter Alice? Peter Alice, I think. Okay. And uh, he would, you know, he would do this quite a lot. And the thing that was funny was obviously the whole point was where they're conducting a bit of an interview as they're mm. playing golf. And and the hilarious thing was he was always so concentrated on the golf. He was like, shut up about that. I'm playing up. I've got to make this one for a birdie. <laughs> you know? Well, golf, golf, I think he loved golf more than anything. Like, yeah. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. Golf was his number one think you know so for he, he would he would he when he went on that show i'm sure it was like well i'm going to play golf you can ask me things but like that's not the point of this exercise yeah <laughs> the point exactly. is to play golf <laughs> exactly uh, it's a it's a really uh i used to really love watching them um and it's also I need to I, find those yeah yeah i'm sure they're mm. on on and it also is the origin of one of my favorite um Sean Connery stories where uh, I think Joe Cornish said this on, on the Adam and Joe show, but it's mm. a story about um, uh, a guy going uh, caddying for him uh, just during a normal game. He's just going around and he's caddying him. And after like a charity game or something, and after yeah. they start getting on with each other quite well. And so, and so he sort of builds it place confidence. And so he says to Connery at one point, Oh, you know, um, my dad does a really good impersonation of you. And Connery just <laughs> turned to him and says, your dad sounds like an asshole. 
that doesn't surprise me either. Yeah. Um, so, so coming coming away from Bond, um, if Terence Young was the director who sort of created the Bond Connery or would yeah. co- collaborated with him to create the Bond Connery, then would it be fair to say that sort of Sidney Lumet is the director who sort of helps him forge a career outside of Bond with his, you know, with some startling films? I think there's there's a, there is an argument for that. I mean, he, he collaborates with Sidney Lumet four or five times over the space of twenty five years, nearly. Right. Um, the majority of the films they do are in the seventies. Um, they do the Hill in nineteen sixty five. They do the Anderson tapes in nineteen seventy one. They do the Offense in nineteen seventy three, and then Murder on the Orient Express in nineteen seventy four. And then uh, family business in 1989. So there's a bit of a bit of a gap there, right? So it wasn't necessarily a. I wouldn't necessarily say it was a De Niro Scorsese kind of thing in sure. quite that way, but I do think that you know he never collaborated with people more than once on many occasions. I think the only other director outside of the Bond films, anyway, that he I think he did more than one film with was Richard Lester because he mm. he did. Robert and Marion and Cuba with Richard Lester. Mm. Now I, oh no, Peter Hyams as well. He did two with Peter Hyams. The Outland and um, uh, the Presid- Presidio. Presidio, Presidio, yes, yeah. Um, but he, he very rarely would do. There might be one or two examples as well where he did maybe two films, but that 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 was it. Sidney Lumet he did many more with, and I think they had a shorthand and a relationship that I think Lumet considered Connery the greatest actor of that era, I think, or one of them. And I think he just, and every film they made was different. It wasn't mm. that they just rinsed and repeated. Mm. They, they, but what he did in each of those films was that he, he found different registers for Connery to play in. And particularly I'd say in The Hill and The Offense, which are, which are the two best of their collaborations. Because Murder on the Orient Express, Connery's part of an ensemble. You know, mm. that's more Albert Finney's film really than anything else. Um, and in even in family business, he also has Dustin Hoffman in there, Matthew Broderick. So he's part of a three-hander. Um, whereas, and the Anderson tapes is the one that isn't that good, really. But uh, I don't think. But the Hill and the Offense, he strips back all of the, all of what we know Connery to be, essentially. He and he and he and he makes him a harder, far less charismatic, often, especially in the Offense, a deeply problematic individual. The Offence, I think, is his best role. Mm. And it, in terms of acting, his best film. Not necessarily the best film he was in, but it's his best movie as a performer because he has to go to a place he never, he's never been before. And honestly, he never goes again in his career mm. Mm. in terms of playing this detective who, is in, who he goes up against a, uh, a horrific murderer and starts to see in himself traits that are repulsive and disturbing and he sort of loses his mind throughout doing it and it's a such a great powerful piece based on a play um Mm. by john hopkins and i think and the hill obviously is the hill really is an inspiration for things like stanley kubrick and full metal jacket you know platoon those kind of war films that really get under the the fingernails of of how traumatizing war can be on on soldiers on individuals and i think what lumet saw in connery was that Yes, he has charisma. Yes, he has that presence. But he could also go to places that people don't associate Connery to go to. 
and he really gets there in a lot of these films. And I think he, I think Connery really appreciated the fact that Lumet was willing to invest in him in that way. You know, and he tried, like I say, he tried it with lots of other directors throughout his career. But I think, I think so many of them ended up going back in some ways to the well of Bond. Whereas Lumet didn't do that always. Lumet always tried to find what else Connery could do. And I think that's why he kept going back to him. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what uh, Lumet manages to do with him is sort of taps in the, to that anger that um, yeah that that is there even with Bond. You know, there is there is that sort of there is a there's a bit in in James Bond movies where Connery sort of narrows his eyes and you think, good God, you know, you you really believe he could kill kill people? There's no yeah. there's no you know Roger Moore. It's kind of like when he kills people, it's a bit like what really you killed that guy <laughs> but with connery it's like oh he he i could imagine his face as he strangled me you know he'd strangled mm. me with his bare hands yeah and i wouldn't yeah. mind no i'm joking because <laughs> I, I mean, i'd welcome I, it i i think the anderson tapes i would actually uh go out to bat a little bit for the anderson tapes it just has okay. it's uh it's a good for me it's a great heist film it doesn't quite decide whether it how it wants you know heist is usually a film that's sort of like uh usually pitched as a comedy and this isn't really that um but it doesn't really go it doesn't have any real dramatic heft either but i mm. think it really works as a sort of just a technically good you know and it's got a young christopher walken in his first screen role as That's you true. point out in the book um That's true. and you know connery coming out of the prison at the beginning is just like wow it just looks it just has that 70s great feel to it I feel. yeah that's true it very much does yeah yeah um no maybe i'm being a bit unfair i mean what anderson tapes definitely was a bit ahead of its time in terms of mm. some of the ideas about surveillance you know it's a bit of a precursor to the conversation there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. from Coppola mm. a few years later, which I think does a lot of the same stuff better in many ways. But yeah, maybe I'm being a bit unfair. But yeah, I think even, I mean, family business isn't super successful, but I think every film he makes with Lumet is interesting. If not, if some of them are great and the rest are interesting. And I don't think any director quite got out of him what he did. But it, it, was, it was interesting how it, all the different directors he does work with more than once did try and do different things, you know? And I, mm. and I, I think... But but I I do wonder why he didn't go back to more people, and I and I mm. I think maybe there were points where he just didn't get on with them. <laughs> you know, I think I think he he, he did a put he he worked on a movie and he's like I'm not working with him again. Yeah, was, I don't think he was ever directed by a woman either. I think it was always men. 
which is mm. understandable in the sense that you know very few female directors were working really throughout those decades um but certainly not in the kind of films connery was making uh, no but, yeah, i mean I, in the 70s there was like uh elaine may was basically elaine may. you know there's ida lupino in the 50s and elaine may in the 70s and i i think there weren't very many at all um catherine uh, bigelow I, in the 80s i guess but yeah you know yeah yeah, but there were there were very few, so he he wouldn't have had those opportunities. But, but it would have been fascinating to see what would happen if he had been directed by a woman. Mm. I think. Um, but but yeah, I uh, I think I think John Huston I think gets a great performance out of him in The Man Who Would Be King. I think again, <laughs> but which is a blend of Bond and the other kind of things he was doing. So yeah, I think the the man who would be king. One of the 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 surprise whenever I rewatch that is how funny he is and how f- I yeah. mean obviously he works brilliantly with Kane, but you know tell him my gorge is rising. It's just so funny and it's so about masculinity again with that and a sort of homoeroticism. You know he ends up sort of dressing up as Alexander the Great and yeah. Um, you know, I mean, like just that fact where they offer him a woman or a boy, and he gets disgust- <laughs> he gets disgusted by it. But it's just like, man, you're spending all your time with Michael Caine. You know, you know what yeah. I mean? That's your yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's it's a real shame. Well, there's two things out of that that's a shame. It's a shame mm. he didn't do more with with Caine because obviously mm. they were great mates throughout their whole life. And I mean, have you ever seen the clip? Um, I think it's at the 1989 Oscars where he, Kane and Roger Moore present an award and the, the, the banter between them on stage is glorious. It's just so nice to stay. They're just clearly three mates. Yeah. And I do think that it, it's that, that chemistry in the money will be King is brilliant between those two. It's just a shame they didn't do more, but I also think it's, it's a real shame that Connery didn't get to do more comedy because he, he didn't do that a lot, but whenever he did sneak it in to his movies, he was so good. I mean, mm. I mean, particularly the one, the one that stands out, I think, for a lot of people is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade because mm. he's so funny in that film, and he he does transform from this quirky little bookish, massive, massively different character that you would ever expect Connery to play to by the end he's on a horse and he, he's Connery again, basically, yeah. and he's <laughs> like, right, let's go, you know, and he does do that transformation, but he's so funny. And I just, I just would love a, and, and then in The Rock, then one-liners that he brings in um, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet from um, Porridge and a lot of great, but he brings them in for so many films to just write him these brilliant one-liners. Even in Never Say Never Again, uh, gets them to put in the, uh, the, the, the joke about, um, can you fill this beaker? Or what, from here? It, from <laughs> Porridge, which is, a, he gets them to recycle that for Never Say Never Again from Porridge. Um, and he nails it. Maybe not quite as well as Ronnie Barker did, but he nails it, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I, I just, I, I, I wish he'd been able to do genuinely just stick him in a comedy and let him rip because I think he would have been brilliant. Well, that's what I think. I mean, sorry to hack back to to Bond, but that's what I think. His Bonds are so much funnier than than Roger mm. Moore's. Roger Moore's Bonds are silly, and that's not the same thing as funny. You know, Roger yeah. Moore's Bonds rely on sort of John Glenn dropping stupid music cues. <laughs> Or, or or a pigeon, a pigeon doing a double take. Uh, oh, absolutely, some guy looking at a <laughs> bottle of wine and and, and back at the hovercraft. It's it, they're just shit. I mean, that's what I think about Daniel Craig coming in in, in Casino Royale. 
they're actually it, it, I, he gets unfairly sort of painted with this idea that that his films are humorless. He's so Absolutely. much wittier and funnier yeah. and much more genuinely fun. You know, do I look like I give a damn? Is oh, yeah. is a much funnier line than anything you would have in uh, you know. But as you say, mm, I mean, mm. Indiana Jones. I should have mailed it to the Marx Brothers. That's <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. Yeah. What a line! It's so good. She talks in her sleep, which which he which he improvised the whole scene where he finds out he's there. How do you know she was a Nazi? He improvised that line, and they all just cried with laughter on the set and Spielberg went that's staying that's brilliant so they you know and that that's it he he was naturally funny I think quite often he would he would improvise whenever he could and he'd bring that humor in Mm. but Mm. again that the great thing about that is that he's playing on the masculinity he's playing on that Connery what people think of him you know because in really they could originally Gregory Peck was going to be Henry Jones senior which I under I'd understand that in many ways excuse me I totally get that. I could see that that working in a different way, but no way I think could you have pulled that line off and the idea that actually he sleeps with the, the beautiful blonde who's half his age and Indy's freaked out by it because you're doing it because because Indy's dad is James Bond, like and you know what I mean. And it's oh. that and Connery understands that and that's why he knows he can get away with it. And it's that's, so good. That's so sick. That scene is so sick when he's yeah. saying when he's from in both senses of the word sick. <laughs> when he says, you know, I've got as much right as the next man, I was the next man. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But but it, when it could have come across as really sort of skeevy, it actually doesn't. It's no, very funny no, yeah. and it's quite charming in its own way. And, and very few actors could have pulled that off, which right. is, again, why I think he would have been able to sell actual comedy and being in, in a movie like that, which he never really does. I don't think he's brave enough. I don't think he thinks he can do it. Right, and right. he's never really in a film that goes fully into that comic persona, which is which is a shame. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's not broadly comic, but I think his I think he's always got there's always wit to his character, and, and yeah. I think one of the films where he shows that very very well, and again maybe a little bit underrated, um, the Russia House, the John Le Carre. Yeah, uh, his his character there, um, Barley Blair. Barley Blair yeah. is is just so I I. You know, he's got that scene with like Ken Russell, I think, is it is as a cameo in it. And that's sort of chat. Ken Russell's in quite a bit of it, to be fair. Yeah, Ken Russell's that's... got more to do with I thought he would in that film. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they're kind of yeah. funny together. There's a real mm. um I, I really like him in that film. I think he's really good. And I think he pulls off the sort of May to September romance with Michelle Pfeiffer uh, mm. uh very well. I mean, and also, you know, it's Michelle Pfeiffer and Sean Connery, they're two yeah. movie stars, so why wouldn't they, yeah. you know? Absolutely. I think, uh, I think he, I think, I think 10 years later, he's finding that harder to do with Catherine Zeta Jones, really. I think oh, by yeah. then it's, it's a bit of a stretch, but yeah, in the early nineties when he, you know, he still didn't really look his age quite to the same extent. Absolutely. Yeah. He makes it work. Yeah. I mean, I was shocked we're talking about age. I was shocked when you said, you know, Diamonds Are Forever, he was 40. And I was like, Jesus Christ, he looks like he's 50 in, in Diamonds yeah. Are Forever. He looks but it's, awful. It's, it's, it's weird because he actually looks way better. 10 years later when he makes Never Say Never Again. He yeah. looks so much more youthful and, and you know, I, 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 those weren't his greatest <sighs> years in terms of how he looked, yeah. Of course, right. that's my, uh, that, I, I have seen a Connery Bond at the cinema. There you go, Never Say Never Again. I saw that. At the oh, cin- you saw that? Oh, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, 
yeah, I remember liking it, but then again, I was a kid, so what did I know? I was, in a, I was, in, I was at that age where anything that was on the cinema was good. I remember, yeah. I think the first film, which was also stars Sean Connery, that I sat in, and I must have been like 16, 17, and I was watching it, and I just suddenly went, is this bad? Can, can, can that happen? Can they actually release a bad film? And it was Highlander 2. Oh my God. The answer is yes, John. The, yeah. uh, do you know what, right? The thing is, the thing is, actually, and I hate, I do hate to say this, but he made a lot of bad movies. Like, it, it, he really did. It's not, oh, no. Outside of the Bonds, he did. Like, if you go through his whole career, as I have done, then there, there are a lot of films that uh, people don't really remember for mm. good reason. Things, mm. things like Ransom, which was a, a film in the mid 70s where he plays a hostage negotiator. Um, and, and it's rubbish. Things right. like um, uh, there's a film called The Next Man in the mid 70s as well, aka The Arab Conspiracy, which is like a, a, a geopolitical thriller. Not very good. Mm. You know, there's, there's loads of examples of this throughout his career. And Highlander 2, The Quickening, which, I mean, yeah. to be fair, he was barely in it. And I think he, he, he said, like, pay me a million and I'll do 20 minutes work. <laughs> and then I'm going. And, and, and he did. But, you know, I think he. Um, he didn't always have the greatest choices. I think. Mm. I think. I think he. He. He's. He was always compelling. I think. In. I don't think there were many films where he's not compelling to watch. But a lot of the ultimate final package of a lot of these films, they're not great movies. And it's really interesting to see that. And and it's surprising actually because you'd assume he'd have this amazing body of work, and he doesn't. He has. He has these fantastic movies at points. He has these iconic roles but he has a lot of experimental stuff or things that are much more under the radar that just fundamentally don't work. Mm. And I think, but I think he always came, went into these things or came out of them as well, thinking I tried it, but audiences so often would reject it. I mean, he makes a one in um, 1982, which is a really weird year for Sean Connery. He makes two movies that are so off the track now, five days, one summer where he he's in the Alps with his, um, his brother's daughter, I think, and there's, it's, it's a bit of an incestual love affair, and it's just really, really strange. Fred Zinnemann's last mm. movie, or Wrong is Right, aka The Man with the Deadly Lens, which is, it's a bit of ahead of its time. Richard Brooks' film, a bit of a war satire, you know, about the Middle East, where he plays a, a new a cameraman, an American cameraman, news reporter, but he's miscast, you know? Mm. And so there were lots of these th things that he did that when you watch them, they just don't hold together, sadly. Where, where do you put Zardoz in that in that sort of spectrum? <laughs> Zardoz is in its own universe, John. Right, <laughs> right. uh, far in, far Zardoz, in the future. But yeah, far in the future. I think Zardoz is is is. Oh, how do you describe Zardoz? I mean, uh, it's the ultimate Connery experimentation. You know, mm. the irony is that uh, the years, there's so many examples of how he turned down roles because he didn't understand them. He went, oh, I'm not playing Gandalf. I don't understand the script. Morpheus or the architect in The Matrix? No, I don't understand the script. Yet he makes Zardoz <laughs> with John Borman. And I mean, I think what he was drawn to were the ideas that Borman has in that film, really. Mm. But the ultimate expression of it is a curate's egg i think it's fair to say zardoz you know mm. it's infamous more now for the image of him in a big red nappy and a big sash holding a big gun <laughs> with a big mustache well, well, the, and i the, think the joke there is that that's the infamous image but he's also in a wedding dress in that film <laughs> as well so the fact yeah. that there's an even more crazy image of him uh 
<laughs> that just yeah. goes unnoticed is is kind of funny as well. I think there was an eccentricity about him in a way that didn't always come through. I mean, much, much later, and it's much obviously much more of a corporate movie, but he makes The Avengers, the, mm. the remake, which is, you know, pilloried by many people for good reason. But he, in that scene, he, I mean, he's playing like a Bond villain, essentially. But he dresses at one point in a bear costume and he's having like a conversation with lots of scientists who he's, who he's, you know, it's that classic Bond scene that you get a bunch of scientists around the room and he says, this is my evil plan. And then anyone object? And then one guy goes, I object. And, he, and then he kills him, basically. It's that mm. scene. But they're all dressed as a bear, basically. So mm. like, it's really, really odd. And I think at times, I just think he liked to do these really eccentric you know, moments and just, just play with that really just to say, and I think Borman, obviously Borman's film, Borman's a great filmmaker and Zardas is extremely strange and eccentric. And he didn't really understand science fiction to mm. be fair. Mm. Connery, he, ne- he admitted that he said he never really got sci-fi, but I think he liked the idea of something like Zardas, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I, got a lot of affection for that film just because it's so freaking crazy it's just like <laughs> I, I mean you quote yeah, yeah. him you quote him in your book saying sort of like i, re- I read the script twice and i re- i was right i was in i was in immediately you know and it was like <laughs> what was was the script the same as the film because it's yeah. um it, i can't yeah. see that on paper being i guess I, you don't I, have I, the costumes in front of you but he said no i mean he, yeah. this is a guy who is famous for being absolutely you know a bit of a pain in the ass uh, on mm. set and everything. And the morning they presented him with that costume, it's like, yes, that's fine. <laughs> that's absolutely- <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. I have no notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can I keep I just- my moustache? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just, I do think he just wanted to experiment. I do. Mm. I think he wanted people to see him in different guises, you know? And I think that's why, and I think there were certain filmmakers maybe he wanted to work with, you know, I think Borman was probably one of them, you know, and uh, it's a shame he never got to do Excalibur later yeah. on because he was down for Borman's Excalibur and he couldn't do it. But he uh, he then later plays Arthur in the much less interesting first night in the um, in the mid nineties. Yeah. But he, he, playing Arthur in Excalibur would have been, would have been great. Yeah, no, absolutely. First night is a is is a weird one. It's it doesn't. Mm. I I watched it quite recently, and it's not does not stand up at all. No. Um, also, it was sort of the years when Richard Gere was sort of thrashing about trying to find what he wanted to do. You know. Um, yeah, yeah. I I I mean, I think there is that thing that I got from reading your book, and this was one of the things that was that sort of surprised me. I I started to think he's he's kind of like a closet intellectual. You know, at one point mm. he, he says, you know, his favorite filmmaker is Ingrid, uh, Ingmar Bergman mm. and he and cries and whispers. I went to see cries and whispers and I, I was transfixed. I couldn't, you know, I, I the two hours went and I I was totally absorbed and I thought about this film loads. And I would if I was, you know, if you put a gun to my head and say Sean Connery's favorite filmmaker and favorite film, <laughs> I would not say cries and whispers in a million years. Um and no. and you have the same thing. He's preparing to do Name of the Rose, um, uh the Umberto Eco mm. adaptation. Yeah. And and he reads Aristotle and he reads his, you know, he's reading, he's going into stuff and he's trying to 
you know, I just get that feeling of, again, going back to Bond and his brandy, you know, he's actually had to make the effort to acquire this taste, to mm. acquire these interests. And in some ways that means that they're more deeply held and more knowledgeable than maybe people who've just been born into that world, you know. Mm. If you're, yeah. if you're, you'll always be that milkman from Edinburgh in your head. So, you know, you, when you're reading Aristotle, you're still reading it thinking, I used to deliver milk in Edinburgh. Now, <laughs> now look at me, you know. Now look at me. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I think you're right. I think he, I think he, he really aspired to more. I think he really did. You know, he, he did study, he did learn. He was quite, I think in some ways, he was quite an introvert in a way. Mm. I think, I think mm. he, didn't, he, he didn't want the limelight. I think he liked, he did like to be left alone. I think he did enjoy reading. I think he was the persona that he had to be fair on screen and off screen, you know, I don't, I don't think there was too sometimes too much of a difference, but I think that the, the only difference was he did aspire for that intellectualism. And, you know, you, when you hear him talk, mm. he's, he's, he is quite, he is quite thoughtful about how he speaks. He doesn't just throw things out there. You know, he's the way he pronunciates words, you know, in interviews, the way he, he, he will respond to something. He'll use comments and phrases you know, like like at one point he says um, about Bond and how he doesn't want to be Bond forever. He says, I, want to, I don't intend to go through a metamorphosis like that. And these kind of things where mm. he could phrase things in a much more prosaic, you know, laid back way. And he doesn't. And I think people forget that about, about Connery and that he was he was educated. He was quite well read. He did study acting as well. He he, did, he studied with an acting coach called Yat Malmgren in the, um, I think the, the 50s or the 60s. And he went and he and he really did invest in that craft, you know, in a way that people don't appreciate. And and I, th mm. I think that's partly why he was able to bring a physicality and a and a, a visual sense of performance as well as his, you know, he, he was quite open about the fact that his, his accent and his voice was never going to change and that he mm. wasn't suddenly going to be doing a deep south draw, you know, all this kind of thing, because he knows he couldn't do it. And he was he's been quite open about that. But I think the other elements of his performance, the way he moved, the way he held himself. I think he did study that. And I think he did think about that and consider that. And I think that's one of the reasons he's so magnetic on screen in many of his performances. Mm. I think, yeah, I think that thing about his accent and his voice, I mean, we were joking about it earlier. And, uh, but uh, he, he, you know, you quote him talking about the musicality of, of his voice and how he thinks mm. about it musically and how, you know, he goes over the scripts with the directors and the writers and he sort of is very, pays close attention to that sound. Mm. And when it comes to his accent, it's like, oh, well, if they're worrying about that, they're not interested in the character. So I don't care, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that really I think that really makes sense. You know, I mean, I really love Richard Burton, another great actor who's made uh, a pile of you know questionable films, and um, and he's uh, you know, and he you know he appears in films like The Klansman, sort of approximating some sort of as you say southern drawl. Uh, and it and and yet it's still always Richard Burton, and and he he would be technically you would regard Richard Burton maybe as a much more accomplished actor, but but I I see Burton and Connery actually in quite a similar sort of way. I'm I'm always watching a Burton movie. I'm never like you know, I'm I'm never watching. I'm uh, he never disappears into the character for me. Do you know another actor who I think forms a bit of a triumvirate in terms mm. of actually the U the, uh, the England. Oh well, the UK, I should say, mm. in that way, Richard Harris, because yeah. I think if 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 you look at the three of them, there are similarities 
in the sense that they all have very magnetic personalities there are aspects of, of who they are in real life that bleed into the performances burton famously was considered for bond for dr no and it didn't happen i think probably the right choice ultimately but if you look at Bert, burton especially but harris too they never quite had that star power that connery did at his height mm. because because they both burned out <laughs> too too fast yes harris lived longer than burton granted but he wasn't super old and in the end the years of excess and partying and drinking and the hard lives that they lived the tempestuous lives that those two lived their stars shone hugely brightly you know they had their peaks in terms of careers they were really respected they gave these really fascinating performances but in the end they couldn't sustain it really mm. whereas connery lived to a ripe old age yes he retired about 20 years before he died. But I think had he chosen not to, I think he would have been making films for years after. And I think his star power would have continued. And I think that the only, the difference was that Connery actually did leave a relative, lead a relatively conservative life in terms of drugs, alcohol, that kind of thing. I don't think he really did much of that. He had mm. affairs, you know, he had, he had, you know, there, there was a sexual aspect to his life, I think, and that kind of thing. But I think, he didn't quite have that flame out sensibility. You know, he was married to uh, his first wife, you know, for a shorter time, but his second wife, he was married to for like 40 odd years, you know, and I think he had a stability that I think Burton and Harris never had. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the difference in that maybe he didn't quite have the acclaim in terms of the, 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 the acting, like mm -hmm. certainly that Burton had, like you say, the stage acting and this kind of thing. And I think that's where Connery was always disappointed. I think that's why when he won the Oscar for the Untouchables, I think that meant a lot to him. Because I think mm. that was a real validation for his performance. And, and I mean, that was really justified for me. I think he's brilliant in that film. That's one of his best performances. Um, but I think that that side of it maybe eluded him a little. But, but it, I just find it interesting that there are certain actors in that era working at the same time. I mean, he makes the Molly Maguires with Richard Harris, which isn't a good film, but they're great on screen together. Again. Oh, I disagree. You know, I love the Molly Maguire. Well, I don't love do you? it. Do you like I, 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 it's a really, I think it's a really... It's, I think it's a really powerful film. I, I, I think it's very bleak. It's very dark. And it it maybe that's what it is for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And bleak, and it, yeah. I mean, it's just one of those subjects that you don't get much. I mean, you you compare it in the, your book, you compare it to Shalako in terms of just not as a film, because it's a totally different film, but in mm. terms of the historical period that it's going. Mm. But it just it just strikes me, you know, we other than John Sayles' Matawan, we don't get films about unions and mm. strikes and and they've got true, a actually. usually violent and important history in the United States. Um, mm. And the Molly Maguire's, I think, is a, is a really... And I just love the idea of betrayal and friendship in that that is so... Mm. Uh, yeah, I think that I would put that as a sort of, undis you know, one of those films that deep in his filmography that, that deserves to be taken out and brushed off and... and and looked at and again it's a real it's him playing a real character of complexity yeah. rather than yeah. um you know uh well which which as we've learned from this conversation he he's kind of does more often than not really mm. even if the film doesn't necessarily stand up to it yeah and, and he's good in that absolutely but mm. and you know there are there are certain uh there were certain actors like Harris I, 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 that I wish he'd worked with more. I'd love to have seen him with yeah. Burton on screen. That would have been amazing. He, he should have been in. He should have been in the Wild Geese, shouldn't he? If he'd been in Wild <laughs> Geese, what? A, what yeah. If he'd been the Sergeant Major in the Wild Geese, yeah, 
Yeah. That would be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. Moore, Absolutely. Connery, Harris, oh. Burton. I'll get Kane in there as well. Yeah, all of them. Get the five. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a film. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, he was in he was in an ensemble, wasn't he? He was in A Bridge Too Far. but And he, mm. and he has a, a, a relatively... Um, a relatively sized part in that, but again, that wasn't the same. You know, he needs to be mm. one of these classic mm. old war films with the big actors in that way. Yeah, mm. absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, uh, I've just mentioned the Molly Maguire's as a film that you—it's a film you'd like to recommend that you think people haven't quite seen enough of with Connery. I would probably—I mean, to be honest, I've—I've I've kind of mentioned it already, but I think The Offense is mm. one that I think people must try and seek out. Um, for the reasons I've said. To be honest, the other one that I think is is not as well known anymore, and I think he's a lovely film with a truly beautiful score by John Barry, is Robin and Marion. Because mm. Robin Richard, and Marion... Richard Lester film, right. Richard Lester film, 1976. And, you know, Connery's quite well known for his cameo at the end of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where he swaggers on as King Richard and steals the film <laughs> at the very end. Um but he played Robin Hood, you know, years before that. But he plays a middle-aged Robin Hood. And the beautiful thing about Robin and Marion is that he's he, him and Marion have been apart for years. Marion's had this horrible, loveless marriage to the Sheriff of Nottingham. And he comes back from the Crusades, similar to Prince of Thieves, but, but he's obviously Kevin Costner's younger in that film. But he comes back and he rekindles that love with Marion. But he's, but he's older, he's more measured, he's got... But he has that that real Connery charm on screen, but it has that element of that he knows his, his youth is behind him. And it's mm. one of the first, for, for me, it's one of the first films where he's playing that Connery persona in real middle age. Mm. And I love that for it. You know, he's got, he's got not much hair on top. He's got a gray beard, you know, he's, but he's funny. He's charming. And it's not a brilliant film. Don't get me wrong, you know, but it's, it is lovely. And he's opposite Audrey Hepburn, who's a great middle-aged Marion. Right Shaw is the Sheriff of Nottingham. It's a really good cast. You know, Ian mm, Holton's mm. in there, King John. Um, I would recommend that. I definitely would. I think there's a lot to enjoy. And as I say, John Barry's best to contain something. So, yeah, that's the one. I apart, There's a real, real, a real palette cleanser that could be if you watch the offense first <laughs> to be honest <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean no, i yeah and we haven't even mentioned highlander which uh no, no which, which is true. which is kind yeah. of I, you make the point i think it's a good one um that he's sort of entering into his sort of uh mentor uh stage of his career mm. where he will be mm. the the older guy who tells the younger guy uh the lay of the land you know yeah and he just does that for years. Then he just re- rinses yep. and repeats that for for up until basically he retires in uh, two thousand and three with the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He's basically playing in almost every film the same kind of role, the mentor in various different guises, um, which which is fine. I think I think the last great performance, in fact, another one I'd recommend is Finding Forrester in mm. two thousand by Gus, Gus Van Sant. I think he's brilliant in that. And I, it's a shame that wasn't his last performance because I think it, on so many levels, it would have been a perfect final role for Connery mm. in that he plays a Scot, a reclusive, grumpy Scot who rediscovers his zest for life through a uh, relationship with a young black writer in New York. And it's, I think it's a gorgeous film. And I think mm. he's so good in that. And he's play, I think he's playing himself <laughs> in no small degree. So yeah, that is another one I think people should watch for sure. 
Excellent, excellent. Listen, um, Tony, the, you you mentioned earlier uh, before we started recording that you'd written another couple of books. So I just just want to briefly let's let's go through those. You, you've written a cultural history of Star Trek. Yes, uh, Star Trek history and us, which is uh, all about um, the the history of Star Trek when it comes on in the mid sixties, and it, it tracks it through all of the social cultural changes that Star Trek sort of reflects. So it's things like how the original series in the sixties affects the Vietnam uh, the Vietnam War, about how it, it taught it discusses that within the show and the anxiety about that civil rights as well, obviously with the Nichelle Nichols character in there and the first interracial kiss in the show and things like this. Um, and then goes through how, you know, the later series and movies in the eighties reflect the cold war and, you know, the change in relationship with, with Russia. Uh, and then how later on during the nineties, it, 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 it sort of goes into how society is changing. You see in Star Trek in these later series, how they start to reflect the, um, the the cultural anxieties of of the modern age in the 90s and then and the noughties about terrorism and mm. you know it's not just politics it's a real mix of, of things but it sort of brings it up to roughly about 2020 which is when i wrote the book um Brilliant. but it's I, I think it's a really interesting story because it's not to say that star trek influences all of the 20th century but it certainly reflects a lot of what's going on in a really interesting way, I think. And you also wrote one about uh, myth making in Lost and and other TV shows and other you know what what what's that about? So um, this is called Myth Building in Modern Media, and it's right. it's more of a it's more of a book about the mythologies within TV shows. So mm. the X Files was the first show to coin something called the myth arc, which is where you create within a universe, within a, a story, a sense of an in universe mythology of you know a backstory as well about a, a broader world going on behind the scenes and how that influences um the stories that are being told and I, in that book there's a lot of weaving in joseph campbell's um uh sense of the uh the monomyth as well which is all about how archetypal characters and stories weave into um the way mythologies are made. And I try and make the point that I think these modern TV shows and, and certain movie franchises, well, like Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, have actually created what I'd call the monomyth arc, which is all about bringing all of these archetypes, like the hero's journey and the 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 saving the, the princess from the evil father figure and all of these kind of things that Joseph Campbell writes about in his brilliant book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, how they influence a lot of the modern TV shows and movies franchises that we, we see today so it's um it's a hard one to describe <laughs> right right yeah. i uh i think i think it's i think it's interesting because i think it maybe gives a little bit of a different perspective on some of these um these more populist shows that we we've probably all watched brilliant those sound really interesting I'll, uh maybe you can come on and talk about them at, at some point in the future when i've I've had an opportunity to go and read them i'd love <laughs> to also just just in, in well in terms of the star trek one i'd love to yeah but in terms of star trek one, i'm doing one about the unmade movies as well that's my next book about uh ah. all of the all of the films and tv shows that were never made like the uh the, the, the philip kaufman story where they go back to ancient greece and uh help them and or ancient neanderthals and help them uh make fire and things like that it's there's some wacky wacky things and some fascinating projects so uh so yeah that's my next one and that'll be that'll be a fun trawl through an, a secret history of that franchise excellent i'm looking forward to that what have you got a film book you'd like to recommend well i'd like to stick maybe to um the bond the bond theme of sure. this um given it's connery and uh i'd recommend a book that i found 
very useful in my uh, production of, of the cinematic Connery, which was uh, a book called Some Kind of Hero, which is uh, the James Bond films by Matthew Field and AJ Chowdhury. And it, it's, it's a really great history, essentially, of how those films were made. And it encompasses all the Connery films. And it goes up to, I think, uh, maybe Spectre. I think mm. it does, of the modern edition. I'm sure there'll be a new one about No Time to Die coming soon as well, um, a new edition. But it's it's brilliant. It's one of the best books for the history of that franchise ever, and it was hugely helpful for, to me. So, yeah, if you haven't read that, if you're a fan of Bond and Connery, it's really great. Excellent. excellent. Well, by the way, just as a, an additional thing, what did you think of Bond dying in No, no Time to Die? Was that, <laughs> what was your, where did you land on that? the horns of that dilemma? I, I, I thought it was very good, actually, and I, I understand why people don't didn't take to that, but I think there's been a real difficulty in people's heads with the idea of, Bond dying in that story and Bond dying as a character. Mm. Bond is not dead as a character. The That is one iteration of Bond that died as part of the arc of Daniel Craig mm. and his story. And to be honest, I think it's given the, the, the tone and the style of those, those five movies and how they awkwardly try and create a sense of continuity between the five, which sort of works, sort of doesn't. And it's a bit retroactive. But in terms of the theme and the arc of his character, I think him dying works very well. And I think we have to separate Daniel Craig's Bond from the idea of Bond. Bond will never die. Bond will always come back. And I think there's going to be no difficulty in my mind when in two, three years, Henry Cavill's Bond or whoever (laughs) has the role (laughs) pops back up. He's alive and well, and he's doing his thing. So I think, I think it was really, it was really interesting. And I, I'm glad because it means that they're not afraid now to tell to properly end a story, and and I think I think with I think Daniel Craig's films were good enough that they deserved a, a real a really satisfying conclusion to his arc. So yeah, I liked it. Yeah, me too. I I, I totally agree with you. I, I think as well, if you want to tell a story, you have to have an ending. It's it's, it's yeah. the defining. You know, fact. absolutely. Do you think though that that will mean that like the next Bond, they'll just get rid of? everybody and just start anew i mean I, I think that would be the braver thing to do just get rid of ray fines and all that sort of the, the the even the look and just make a a film which is much more which is just just has a total different flavor to it you know i think they will and and the, the the historical precedent is that when they really like some of these overflowing characters like they did with judy dench which i completely get mm. they carried judy dench over to Casino mm, Royale, yeah. even though they are essentially two different continuities. And there was no sense that Judy Dench's M was any different to the M in the Brosnan movies, even mm. though they were different bonds at different points. Um, but I think at this time, the Daniel Craig films have changed the way they make Bond. And I think they understand that audiences maybe are going to want a, a narrative this time. And I think they will make a Bond narrative with a view and they've, they've, there have been rumours they've been trying to do this for the last few films, but I think they might have a plan in, in place this time a little bit more, and they might start mm. thinking in terms of a real arc for Bond. Yeah. And that might mean we start with, as great as I think Ray Fiennes is as M, and as much as I'd quite like to see Ben Whishaw come back and him mm. and Naomi Harris, because I think they're a really good assortment of actors, I think, yeah, I think they might start from the beginning and build something quite different this time. And I, I, they might not even do the conventional style that we've had because i think they they're aware they they're gonna to keep this relevant they're gonna need to do what they did with casino royale but they can't repeat casino royale yeah i think i think that will be fascinating to see what they do 
I, no, I absolutely agree with you. I think that I think that there's going to be because Casino Royale was was on the back of sort of the Bourne films as well, and was yeah. this sort of feeling that a certain sort of, as I say, sort of flavor, certain style. Um, and I, I wonder nowadays they, you know, who is their major competitor is going to be Mission Impossible. Yeah, and yet at the same Absolutely. time, Mission Impossible isn't going to go on forever. You know, it's it's going to go to space, and then it's going to, you know, and then, then it's done. Go into then, the multiverse, probably then, knowing Tom Cruise. Well, yeah, then they'll fire him into a volcano or something. <laughs> so, like, yeah, um, yeah. yeah I, I I don't know. I'm 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 kind of excited, and I I kind of hope mm. they choose a younger guy. I know that Bond is traditionally, you know, in his thirties, but I think they could sort of that would be another way of sort of marking it out of having like the youngest Bond yet sort of and mm. and and that way also sort of sign somebody up to do you know five pictures so they do have that and with yeah. with our experience of the Avengers and with Marvel universe and everything it seems that audiences are quite happy to to come back and watch a, or Harry Potter even you know come back and watch a mm. five or six or seven film series TV, yeah. TV is cinema. Cinema is TV. What, what can we say? Listen, to <laughs> it's true. It's true. Feel, feel the stag. Um, <laughs> just, just popping them in randomly now. Absolutely, you got to do it. Why not? Absolutely no uh, uh, respect. <laughs> no. Um, listen. Uh, thanks so much for talking to me. Uh, it's been it's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed your book. It was a, it was so. It was so timely as well after his passing that we got this, I got this opportunity to sort of read through it and sort of, sort of appreciate the complex character and uh, yeah, fascinating character who's, who, as you say, is very of his time. So cheers for that, Tony. Really appreciate it. No, well, well, thank you, John. It's been a real pleasure. I really love this podcast. So it's a real delight to be on it. So I re- I'm really grateful. And yeah, I thank you so much for your praise about the book. I do hope people enjoy it. It was it was so much fun to go through his filmography and and discover him in different ways than I than I knew actually, because there were things I'd never seen before when I, and things I didn't know about him. So it was it was a journey for me as well. And I think if people enjoy it, then fantastic. And um like I say at the end of the book. Um, I hope he. I hope if he is on the golf course up there and he does catch it, I hope he enjoys it. <laughs> That's all I can say. Well, that sounds like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably what he'd say, actually. Yeah, it's true. Brilliant. Uh, Tony Cheers. Black, what an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks okay. a lot. Uh, so so that was my conversation with uh, Tony Black. Um, I hope you enjoyed it as much as we obviously did, especially our Sean Connery impersonations, which I think uh, you will agree were like having Mr. Connery in the room. Um, all that is left for me to do is thank Elliot Atkins for the music, Ali Howard for the art, and thank you, dear listener, for, uh, for, for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, take care.
getting good at those. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 